You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. Listening to Lost in Twin Peaks, a Lost in the Movies podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks is a mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and, 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. It's full of rich characters and situations, many of which will surprise or even shock us. So this podcast will avoid all spoilers. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out episode zero, show format and pilot intro. This is the second episode of the first season, and is referred to as such on Netflix, but we'll call it Episode 1, following the DVD and Blu-ray designation. During its German broadcast, this episode of Twin Peaks was dubbed Traces to Nowhere, and although unofficial, this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media. Keep in mind, I have on my site an illustrated companion on lostinthemovies.com that you can use as a guide through these episodes each week covering a different episode of Twin Peaks. Got character rankings, uh, images, screenshots of the different parts that are discussed. It's just a good kind of visual guide to keep in time with the audio, I find. So that'll be linked below along with other show notes. And uh, if you want to follow my work elsewhere, uh, on, as far as other podcasts go, this past week I put up an episode on my Lost in the Movies main feed, also will be linked below, for the film Halloween, obviously hitting the monthly theme. And uh, this episode hits that theme in certain ways as well, so let's get to that. On screen, Cooper meets Audrey, Cooper and Harry interview various townspeople, Pete discovers a fish in his percolator, the log lady says her log heard something the night Laura died, Sarah has a vision of a long-haired man, Hawk spots the one-armed man at the hospital, and Jacoby is revealed to have Laura's necklace while listening to her tape. This is also the episode where we get the first short credit sequence at the beginning. The pilot has a much longer sequence where more actors' names and the title Twin Peaks appears over the machinery of the sawmill, which creates a kind of a different impression. This is shorter, more to the point, and it makes it feel sort of like you're slipping into this magical, mystical world. It, it, it makes the show start to feel like a ritual you sit down to watch, whether you're doing that streaming and binging on Netflix in the 2010s or, you know, sitting by your TV uh, antenna set. I mean, plenty of people had cable, but, you know, your old TV set in 1990. Speaking of which, what is Twin Peaks, our first of the big three questions? Well, the town is becoming mythologized as we move away from the slightly gritty, raw, authentic, gloomy world depicted in the pilot to a more heightened, fantasized version of the town concocted from Hollywood magic. It's more bright and colorful now. We're settling into different corners and confirming that there are many stories here, even if so far most of them seem to be branching off the Lara tree. And even though the pilot suggested a sleepy berg shaken up by an anachronistic violent crime... 
although we did start to peel that back with the safety deposit box, we're now getting a better glimpse at the crime already existent in Twin Peaks, between the drug deals and the reference to a stakeout. Cooper and Lara aren't just spurring activity here. There was obviously a lot going on already. Now, as for Twin Peaks the sh- the, as the stories, the show, as the overall vibe, not just the town, although the soap opera aspects of Twin Peaks get some strong attention, especially in the second half, this episode really grounds itself as a police procedural, emphasizing that Who Killed Laura Palmer wasn't just a hook to get viewers into this world, but will continue to be a centerpiece of an ongoing narrative. In some ways, it feels like this and the next few episodes were when the craze of the show really began to kick off as something fun that the media participated in. Not just an art project to inspire awe, but an audience-engaging piece of entertainment. It's where the idea of the show as winkingly postmodernist also really starts to sink in, between Audrey's music, the cheeky situations and dialogue, the quirky opening scene, the renewed emphasis on the log lady, tonal shifts and ambiguity. People talked about the weird cut when Leo's swinging the soap towards uh, Shelley and asking, is this supposed to be melodramatic? Is it supposed to be serious? Is it supposed to be some some weird sort of black comedy with the country music playing real loud? We'll read a journalist writing about that in a few episodes. That quirky offbeat thing that people associated with Lynch in the premiere, it now seems more diffuse. It's like a general spirit rather than a particular authorial voice because Lynch isn't behind the camera. That said, people did write about this episode a lot as if it was still Lynch calling all the shots. Second question, who is Agent Cooper? Now, Cooper is much more of a lovable, fun, uncomplicated hero. His eccentricities keep us engaged with him, but he's less ambiguous than before. The edge that was there in the pilot is mostly gone, although he can still play the professional cop when needed. You know, there were some moments there where he's like looking at the letter under Lara's finger, or he's like being kind of needle needling Bobby, you didn't love her anyways, and all this. And we're not and, and also sort of stern at times with, with Harry and things like that. But we're not seeing that much of that this episode. There's a lot more uh, enthusiasm to his persona at this moment. And the opening minutes of this episode in some ways feel like the true moment when the Cooper we all know and love is born. We're less distanced from him. Uh, He's still purely a guiding detective figure, though, rather than someone with baggage of his own. The flirtation with Audrey offers a compelling new avenue for personal development. And as I already mentioned, the JFK Maryland quote indicates his worldly curiosity. Finally, then. Who is Laura Palmer? If the town and Cooper are treading more toward the bright and light, Laura remains as a dark undertow. As indicated by the musical shift when Doc opens the portfolio to reveal the photo of her corpse. If anything, the details of her murder become even more grisly in this installment. And we're reminded of what lies beneath the increasingly shiny surface of the town in the show. Laura's complexity is also highlighted as we get a stronger sense of her own criminal activity and emotional fragility end of her charitable giving, something that was only vaguely implied in the pilot. James probably provides the best window into her soul, but even he, as the final scene reveals, was pretty far away from her mind. Could Jacoby offer a better view? Although we don't see her body again, as we did in three scenes of the pilot, four if you include Pete discovering the plastic-wrapped corpse, and there are no more lingering close-ups of her portrait. It's only glimpsed in the background of the Palmer living room, Laura is all over this episode. We watch the picnic video again twice, once in moody, exaggerated slow motion. Her face is uh, superimposed over Donna, and we even get a flashback, an unexpected direct leap into her actual living presence. Well, at least as direct as James's probably very sentimental memory would allow. And we hear her voice for the first time, in both the flashback and on Jacoby's tape. 
it's even more clear than in the pilot that Laura is a character in this show, not just an object of mystery. The feel of this episode is much more brisk and fast-paced than the pilot, and even less gloomy in atmosphere. You can see that Southern California sunshine in some of the exterior shots. There's a joyful lightness to the episode that wasn't present even in the comedic moments of the pilot, and there are many more overtly comedic moments this time. This also feels to me like a more written episode. Despite some of Dwayne Dunham's flourishes, it's mostly the speech that carries the episode along. There's obviously tons of quotable lines. Like I said, they all contribute to the mood of joviality and verve. That said, Twin Peaks is still taking its time compared to most TV at the time, with Dunham holding shots for a while and keeping the sound design subtle and evocative. There are actually extended moments of silence, fewer than in the pilot, but much more than you'd expect on a network show. Overall, though, this does really feel like Twin Peaks moving toward a TV show format. We're really starting to do world building here. This episode is directed by Dwayne Dunham. He was the editor for George Lucas in the early 80s. Uh, he was actually introduced to the film Eraserhead, David Lynch's debut, by Stanley Kubrick, the great film director who was working on The Shining in uh, Elstree Studios near London in uh, 1979 uh, leading into 1980 when the film was released. This was the same time that Lucas was there shooting Empire Strikes Back. So Lucas and uh, Dunham were coming out of the studio. They ran to Kubrick and he said, I want to show you guys my favorite film. And he took them over to his house and showed them that David Lynch's movie. And that was Dwayne Dunham's introduction to the work of Lynch. And Lucas was so impressed with this film that he later tried to hire uh, David Lynch to direct Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars film, of course. Dwayne Dunham actually did work on uh, Return of the Jedi, as he had on Empire, and after that he went to work for David Lynch. Within a few years, he was uh, editing Blue Velvet. And David Lynch wanted him to uh, edit his next film, Wild at Heart, in 1989, and Dunham agreed, but he said he already had a project he was working on, and he would only, you know, quit on them if Lynch would also hire him to direct an episode of Twin Peaks. He wanted to become a director, and he figured this was his golden opportunity. So Lynch said yes, and Dunham got his first directing credit working on Twin Peaks. He, after this, went on to specialize in children's film. For me personally, I would say the ones that stick out the most for my own childhood are Homeward Bound, of course, the remake of The Incredible Journey with the Two Dogs and a Cat Trekking Across the Wilderness, voiced by uh, Michael J. Fox, among others. And uh, Little Giants, the Rick Moranis-coached little football team. For slightly younger listeners, you may remember his Disney Channel titles like Halloween Town, The 13th Year, Double Teamed, and Now You See It. In the past 14 years, his only directorial credit was co-director of a documentary about stand-up paddling. Uh, but he did return to editing after a 25-year interval when David Lynch brought him back on to edit all of season three in 2017. The writers on this episode are David Lynch and Mark Frost, who of course are the co-creators of the series and the co-writers of the pilot too. In the previous episode, uh, talked about their collaborative process on that pilot. This was a little bit of a different story though, which we'll get to in a moment. This script was a much longer episode initially than later episodes would be because they didn't know how the pages would translate into screen time. Usually one page of a script is one minute of screen time, but because Twin Peaks is a little slower paced, takes its time more, uh, they learned that they actually needed to write much less, so a lot of scenes were cut. 
I'm not going to cover deleted scenes much on this podcast, partly because there's already so much to discuss, and also because Twin Peaks Unwrapped is doing a good job going really in-depth. They're even doing restagings of deleted scenes in their own episode guide. As for this particular episode, I think we need to move on to the context section to talk about why it was a different, uh, differently written script than the pilot was. So behind the scenes uh, in the spring, summer of 1989, uh, the pilot was still sort of in limbo. ABC didn't know what to do with it. It was screened for network execs in New York, and they were just kind of baffled. I mean, these are guys who are in the business. They need something sure and safe as a product to deliver to consumers so that they can make their profits. And this was pretty unconventional. So it was held back for a while. There was a screening at the Directors Guild of America in L.A., which went over like gangbusters. So people in the industry loved this. They were really pushing for it. And that may have been what pushed it over the edge. I'm not sure if that DGA screening was before or after the ser- the first season was greenlit, uh, but it was definitely before it was shot because there are people who worked on season one whose introduction to Twin Peaks was going to that screening. So the way it worked is ABC finally agreed that they would commission a seven-episode uh, season of Twin Peaks to be a mid-season replacement. So, you know stepping in when another show got canceled or moved or whatever, uh, at some point, probably late in the season, they would premiere seven episodes of the show. And and that would be it for them. And if those episodes did good, maybe it would get a second season for the 1990 to 91 season. But right now it's just seven episodes, which in a way some people associated with the show thought was good. It would be less pressure. It would let them kind of work out what the show was going to be and have a little more fun with it. Now, at this exact time, David Lynch was getting involved with another project. While he was waiting to hear about Twin Peaks and probably assuming maybe that it wasn't going to get made, he got involved with Wild at Heart, a book based on, or uh, sorry, a uh, movie based on the book, which I believe was called Sailor and Lula, after the two main characters. And he fell in love with this book. It's like a southern, western road trip movie. And he really wanted to make it. And there was a rushed sort of production process. Actually, I've always talked about how his, the Twin Peaks film Firewalk with me was sort of rushed into production, but this was even more so. This, I think, was maybe nine months from, like, screenplay to screen, basically. So on August 8th, 1989, Lynch began shooting Wild at Heart. And this is right around the time that they would be writing these episodes. So I think that Mark Frost probably took the lead in this process, although both of them received credit. Uh, even just the material itself feels a little bit more in Mark Frost's wheelhouse. He was a TV writer. Uh, he had been for years, had done a little film work, but he really understood the mechanism of how to get an hour of TV off. And uh, Lynch, that wasn't anything he was concerned with at all. He didn't really even watch TV that much. He certainly never written it. He was a film guy. He thought about how you tell a story within two hours. So I think on the pilot, because it's sort of that combination of TV and movie, You have both of them working to their advantage. But here, this is much more of a Frost thing. So supposedly they hammered out the structure to like the whole season's arc together. Uh, uh, Frost had talked about calling Lynch on the phone while he was on location in Texas or wherever, shooting Wild at Heart. But really, Frost was the man on point. He was there while it was shooting. He contributed much more to the writing of season one, oversaw and hired the other people who would write for season one. He was very much present during production, whereas Lynch was completely absent until very near the end of production. This episode was shot in the fall, probably around late October or early November. 
I've seen a uh, schedule for the last episode of this season, and it's early December. So if they were taking about a week for each episode, that would make sense. Uh, that means it was now a good six or seven months after the pilot. Haircuts were different, most notably in Audrey's case. She went from a pixie cut to like a bob overnight, which is kind of funny. Uh, Leo and Andy also have somewhat different hairstyles. Andy had a little bit of a mullet in the pilot, and Leo had that curly bangs coming down and a uh, little, I think, blonde streak in his hair, and now he's just its much more straight and straightforward. And the shooting environment was very different. The pilot was shot on location in rural Washington outside of Seattle, closer to a film crew style of production than TV. Episode 1 and all the episodes after it were filmed in a warehouse on Van Nuys, part of Los Angeles and the San Fernando Valley. Richard Hoover, the new production designer for the ongoing series, built a makeshift soundstage with numerous sets ready to shoot within about six weeks. So all the unique places that have been discovered by location scouts in wintry Washington, the Grand Old Hotel, the Classic Diner, the Family Homes, the Sheriff's Station, the Sawmill, and so forth, they were all reconstructed and often given a stylized flourish as a close assembly of sets in sunny L.A. So like you had, you know, you could literally just walk out the diner door and you'd be in, like, the Great Northern or something like that. There's a little bit of a Disneyland quality to this and to the whole show going forward of a stylized, made-up environment that tweaks the outside world to wrap us up in a cozy, magical illusion. And that's it for this kickoff episode for Season 1, Episode 2. The coverage will continue tomorrow, as it will throughout the week, with different aspects of this episode. Tomorrow the focus is on the mystery and the story structure. We're going to cover who killed Laura Palmer, mystery clues we get here, also the structure of the episode, and then we'll continue throughout the week with more, just like we did for the pilot, and just like we will for all of the subsequent episodes. So I'm looking forward to seeing you there. As always, you can support my work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies, where you get a lot of bonus material, including all of the upcoming episodes of this Lost in Twin Peaks series in uh, longer chunks, where I release them that way uh, on Patreon rather than in the shorter chunks. But same underlying material for almost all of it. And uh, you can rate and subscribe and uh, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you want to help uh, promote this. So thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.